Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. I did not see the midterms as a rebuke necessarily of Donald Trump's Republican Party, just as a message that independent-minded voters and centrist voters and soft Republicans, so to speak, are over Donald Trump, are very much over Donald Trump. But when it comes to a primary, I don't know that anything has changed post-November, but I'd love to know your thoughts. You know, I could not agree with you more. This is Radio Atlantic. I'm Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic. I'm joined today by my colleague, Elena Plot Calabro, who is also a staff writer at The Atlantic, who covers politics. Hi. Okay. The Republican Party is in a strange place. The 2022 midterm losses stunned the GOP and created calls for a 2024 challenger to Donald Trump. But can the party move past the man who dominated it for six years? Now, we're actually going on seven years, almost eight years, right? It just keeps going and going and going. So, uh, hi, Elena. Tell us, tell us everything. Yeah, as I sit here, I am reflecting on the most recent midterm elections. And I would say that for me, the biggest takeaway and what I'd love to hear your thoughts on is when we were counting down to see if somebody like Carrie Lake in Arizona, also someone like Blake Masters in Arizona, would end up pulling it out for the Republicans, you know, what that would say about the party. Masters and Lake, of course, were huge proponents of the stolen election theory, but it didn't work in the end. And I think the kind of immediate takeaway, at least that I was seeing among centrist-minded people, but also people on the right who are vaguely anti-Trump, was that this was a lesson that the party is very ready to move on from Donald Trump. That, you know, had somebody like Carrie Lake won, maybe the message would have been the inverse. But I was a little reluctant to embrace that take for the reason that even if candidates who were all in on the stolen election theory ultimately lost their general election, they still won the primaries, in many cases quite handily. No, I mean, I'm quite amused, as I suspect you are too, by the the Republicans are ready to move on from Donald <laughs> Trump notion that people like John Cornyn, John Thune, Mitch McConnell, any number of political operatives, any number of oh my gosh, what do we do now, people, because we've so underachieved in these midterms. Let's scapegoat uh, Ronna McDaniel, right, the mm. RNC chair. You know, Democrats were supposed to lose seats. They actually wound up gaining a seat. The House, you know, was a major underachievement. What could possibly happen? Okay, so what happens when Donald Trump goes and endorses Republican X tomorrow? I'm guessing he or she will win a decisive majority in Ohio District Y, right? So, okay, Republicans have a terrible candidate quality 
problem. I mean, Mitch McConnell used those words explicitly, referring to the fact that Herschel Walker, like Masters in Arizona, what would have you go down the list, are not great candidates, and that will hurt Republicans. Um, you know, now in the aftermath of the midterms, a lot of people say that, oh, we have an RNC problem. We have a Ronna McDaniel problem. We have a Mitch McConnell problem, whatever. Um, what are we missing here? I, I think what's what we're missing here, and, and we can talk about this more, is who picks these candidates, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not people sitting up in Washington. The problem is that Republicans don't have a Trump problem. They have a voter problem. It was the voters who picked Kerry Lake and Blake Masters. Perhaps it was independents and centrist Republicans who showed up on general election day and did not vote for them. But when it came to the primaries, these candidates won in many cases pretty handily. So just because they have lost in November doesn't mean those voters themselves have changed. And by voters, I mean really the base of the Republican Party, the ones who are going to show up and vote in primaries. Their preferences, what I think the midterms showed us, have not changed at all. Right. And and part of it is that there's no language for this. Like, no one can get up there and say, hey, by the way, voters, we have a voter problem. I mean, that's not what any would-be leader would ever say. And, you know, unfortunately, it's really, really hard to talk about what is in the hearts of a good number of voters. I mean... You know, that, that gets you to some ugly words like racism or anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. things that no one wants to be called, right. <laughs> whether you're a voter or a non-voter, whether you're political or non-political. I mean, it's ugly. But, you know, Donald Trump has been pretty unshy about appealing to a lot of the right. impulses that are quite ugly. And even now, we'll not disavow these incredibly ugly elements that he's eating dinner with. Anyway, what we are essentially talking about a lot of the same things, which is voters, radicalization of voters and Republican voters, which is actually a perfect segue into Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, as rendered in Elena's profile, is a deliciously kind of mundane, lost, suburban, decadent soul. But I guess the larger question I would ask Elena is, how is Marjorie Taylor Greene emblematic of these voters that we're talking about? I love that you use the word mundane to kind of describe the atmospherics of that story and how she came to power, because I think that was what was so shocking to me was the ease with which one in America can slide into that kind of radicalism. Marjorie Taylor Greene was entirely apolitical, really, before she discovered Trump and QAnon in late 2016 going into 2017. So this is not someone who kind of had these latent political thoughts sort of churning, and then Trump ignited them in a way. She was someone who had tried to anchor her identity in various things throughout her adult life, whether it was evangelical Christianity. She spent a long time at CrossFit. And then as you know, her interest in those things sort of started to taper off, it just so happened that it was right when Trump came onto the stage. And she says very explicitly um, in an interview at one point, Trump reminded me of my dad. And it was as though she had found the anchor she had finally been looking for, for her identity. Again, going back to just the ease with which it can tumble from like typical midlife crisis to total radicalization. She's on Facebook one day, and based on my reporting from people who really knew her at that time, she found the Save the Children hashtag, and it was as though a portal opened, and she kind of stepped into the looking glass. And for listeners who may not remember, the Save the Children hashtag 
fed into this conspiracy theory called Pizzagate that there was kind of a ring of pedophilia being run by Democrats in the basement of a D.C. pizza shop. And the potency of this conspiracy theory was such that there was a man from North Carolina who actually came down with a rifle, you know, bent on avenging these mythical children living in this pizza shop and fired inside of this restaurant. You know, it was a horrific incident, but I think for a lot of America, it was a wake-up call just in terms of how these conspiracy theories that, you know, a lot of people might talk about and just sort of wave off as silly are really taking root in, you know, certain segments of the population. And people like Marjorie Taylor Greene did not log off. The deeper she got, the more deeply she became convinced that Democrats were sort of this soulless apparatus who were trying to alongside people like the Rothschilds and George Soros control the world in a nefarious way. And her purpose, as she saw it, sort of became to combat this. So she ran for office. I take you all through that kind of long and rambling journey just to say that there was nothing really especially remarkable about it. She was a relatively normal person, a suburban housewife who had some time on her hands and had an internet connection. And here we are today. I mean, wow, the utter unremarkableness of Mm -hmm. it, the mundanity of it, the conventionality of it makes it so spectacularly familiar. You know, I talked to a number of fairly mainstream Republican members of Congress who are most of them not in Congress anymore because Trump kind of drove them out. But they talk about their parents, particularly their parents sitting down in Florida. And some even siblings. Yeah. Yeah, it's so close to everyone. And they sit they watch up like hours of Fox mm-hmm. News a day. And um, there's like, you know, our biggest problem is all of these pedophiles running through our streets or these Antifa, you know, gang members marauding through our streets. Like, is that that's like our biggest problem. And if we don't stop this, you know, caravan over the border, I mean, you know, sort of pick your menace of the week, right? So very conservative Republican Congressman X says, like every week I say, mom, just knock it off. Turn off the TV. Like go outside, take a walk, mm-hmm. go bowling, do something. Like this is not your religion. You talk about this more than you talk about anything else. You know, and I think when you get older and when people get older and this is largely still, you know, a lot of the Fox watching population and a lot of consumers of this, you know, you become sort of fixed into the daily routine. Your echo chambers get smaller. And again, it's part of the completely unremarkable day-to-day radicalization that we're talking about. And, you know, now they're becoming very, very vocally represented in Congress. But I think what has become so different, especially since Trump came onto the stage, is that you have political leaders literally in the West Wing who are affirming these people and these beliefs, who aren't telling them to knock it off or whatever. You know, it's very different, even if your son is a congressman, to hear it from your son. But when you have someone in the White House saying, no, 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 (coughs) He's leading you astray. Keep right. watching it. I, um, I I think that's a huge part of it. And going back to Marjorie Taylor Greene, this is why I think a congresswoman like her is so dangerous. Because at this point, it almost doesn't matter if she actually believes in it deeply anymore, any of mm-hmm. those things. Because she has made it so essential to her brand. And what she understands is that she can kind of vaguely flirt with disavowal as she did on the House floor in her maiden speech before she got stripped of her committee assignments. She said, you know, essentially, like, there were some things I believed that were not true. 
At no point did she say QAnon is full of falsehoods. It's extremely dangerous to society. I wish I'd never fell prey to it. And I hope anyone listening to this knows that, you know, this it's not the way forward. She did nothing of that sort. I mean, this is what I think people don't appreciate about her. She is a shrewd person. She's a shrewd politician. And she understands that her supporters who were listening to her that day, who continue to listen to her, still like QAnon, still are flirting with the edges of it, if not the very depths of it. So she's never going to outright disavow it. And the problem with that is, and I'm going to jump briefly to pre-January 6th when I would cover Congress, you'd go on the Hill and you would ask, what did you think about Trump's latest tweet or whatever? And they all hated that question. Hated it. They hated it so yeah. much. They said, the tweets are meaningless. It means nothing. Like, um, this it. is just trivial. Yeah. yeah, I didn't see it. I don't get on Twitter. Nobody's yeah. reading that stuff. And at times, I could kind of empathize. You know, it would suck to be asked about this barrage of his 140-character thoughts at all times. But the thing is, Americans were reading them. They were paying attention. And I think that all would have punched people in the face with the truth of that on January 6th, that there was a large cohort of people who had been listening to every single thing that Trump was saying. And I think the same is true with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Even if she doesn't believe the things she's saying anymore or the things she's insinuating with or flirting with, the people listening to her do. And what they do with that can change the political landscape as it did on January 6th in ways that we just can't quite fathom. No, we, we, we can't. You know, if you do sort of look at the recent trajectory, I mean, we're still in the Trump age. The extremely fashionable thing to say and repeat these days is, well, the Republicans are, like as we said before, ready to move on, right? And so what would that look like? Just we're ready to move on. And so John Cornyn, John Thune, Mitch McConnell can say all that and like, let's go have them start a rally in Ohio and see if they get more than like 100 people, maybe 50 people, right? <laughs> uh, Donald Trump could have a rally down yeah. the street. I'm guessing the, the, the crowd would be substantially bigger. Um, so now the fashion is, oh, well, Ron DeSantis is sitting down mm. in Florida. We're all waiting for him. He's the alternative. He is the anointed one. But um, no, I don't think so. Um, here's a couple problems. DeSantis, I think, is very likely to be part of a long line of overhyped presidential candidates who are going to get into the race, be an 800-pound gorilla, and start dominating like Rick Perry did in 2012 or Scott Walker did in 2016. I mean, you know, go through all the list of non-presidents, right? The only sort of anointed hot Republican governor who got in and kind of rolled to the nomination and eventually the presidency was, was George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. And DeSantis, I get the same vibe here with one exception. Donald Trump's right there, right? And Donald Trump does not like Ron DeSantis for one reason, one reason only. He's taken the spotlight away. He wants to maybe beat him. And so, you know, maybe you have a situation where the two of them going at it. And then what, Mike Pence is going to like be sitting there waiting to run for president his whole life and say, oh, no, I'm going to defer to Ron DeSantis sitting in Florida. No, I'm going to try. And Liz Cheney or, you know, Adam Kinzinger or like Larry Hogan, someone who's sort of in the never Trump lane, they're going to say, yeah, I'm not going to be scared off by Ron DeSantis. So next thing you know, seven candidates, one of them is Trump. 40% of the Republicans in Iowa are rock solid for Trump because they love him. He wins, and off we go. DeSantis, after a few second-place finishes, decides that, you know, i got a big future. Maybe Trump will make me his running mate. Maybe I'll go and 
in the most obsequious and cringy way, start sucking up to him again, like I built my entire recent political career on, um, and I'll stop being the alternative, and we'll just all revert to form, and all of a sudden, it's 2024, and here we are again. Mm-hmm. DeSantis is not at all positioned to go into a race where suddenly he is having to talk about all the bad things Trump has done. I mean, it's just been antithetical to how he's built his own brand. The campaign commercial he did where he was teaching his child to build the wall with Legos or something like that. Mm. I'd love to hear more about what you think his kind of like his style is and maybe what the fanfare around him is missing about him. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that the fanfare is missing is that he's not a terribly charming dude. I mean, he is whatever. That's sort of overstated. But I mean, people who served with him in Congress, Republicans who served with him in Congress, Republican governors I've spoken to who are on various RGA related things, Republican governors associated related things, do not speak well. And also people who worked with him in Florida. I mean, his friends are ostensibly his friends or people who will probably support him say that, you know, he's got kind of a heavy lift as far as being an appealing Mm look you in the eye kind of, I mean, if, if he tries to start a, a charm offensive, he would begin unarmed, right? I mean, he needs to, this is not something you learn overnight. And I do think that, that Donald Trump does tend to do particularly well against people who are not terribly comfortable in their own political skin, who can't think on their feet. Such a good point. You know, putative front runner, Jeb Bush, you know, superstar Marco Rubio, I mean, go down the list that he just basically reduced to puddles and and just sort of bulldozed right over. So, um, yeah, I mean, DeSantis' biggest problem for now is Trump. And he's basically a Trump derivative. I, I just think that DeSantis is fool's gold until otherwise. I mean, yes, he's got some nice poll numbers. Donors seem really excited about him. Let's see him just sort of plunk himself down in the middle of Iowa or Ohio or Texas or somewhere and get a crowd like one-tenth the size of what Mm -hmm. Trump could do if they tried that tomorrow. Well, let's talk then about Larry Hogan, totally different kind of Republican. Um, Just like everyone else is, right? (laughs) Right. Oh, actually, wait a minute. Okay, never mind. What is he thinking? I mean, Larry Hogan's kind of a generic, like, hey, I'm a popular Republican governor in a blue state, and I don't like Donald Trump. Vote for me. He talked about challenging Trump in 2020, showed up in New Hampshire and Iowa, and the press was like, ooh, what a coincidence. Then he said, well, I'm not going to launch a suicide mission against Donald Trump. Uh, So Larry Hogan, like a lot of Republicans of various stature, you know, Mike Pence, Liz Cheney, Chris Christie, Paul Ryan, did a big speech at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, and he talked about, you know, we have to be positive. We have to be Ronald Reagan again. The idea is like, okay, we're just going to return to the sunny optimism of Ronald Reagan. I remember Hogan gave this speech in Simi Valley, and that exact same night, J.D. Vance won his primary in Mm. Ohio, and he's standing at a a podium in Cincinnati, you know, singling out Marjorie Taylor Greene for her great contribution and Donald Trump. So, look, Larry Hogan's making all kinds of noises about running. He's term limited. He's about to be an ex-governor. I'm sure he's got a case he could make. You know, again, I would send him to Iowa. I bet, you know, his rally wouldn't be all that much to watch live on Fox, CNN. I don't think he'd probably get a very big crowd. But, hey, maybe we're completely missing the boomlet that's about to um, The Larry explode. Hogan boomlet. Yeah, it's about to explode. Now, look, I mean— Look, it's a great argument. It's perfectly sound. It just doesn't really exist in the real world of today's Republican Party. Yeah. Shining city on a hill, time for being positive. It 
it made me think of while I was reporting this Marjorie Taylor Greene piece, she did a radio show and this woman called in and was saying, I'd love to talk to you about your, you know, really extreme position on abortion and clearly just wanted to have a back and forth Mm -hmm. with the congresswoman. And she immediately, it's just like, all defense is ready. Mm. She says, and I'm paraphrasing, but she's yeah. essentially saying, based on the sound of your voice, it doesn't sound like you'll be getting pregnant anytime soon. So I don't mm. know that this question is actually relevant to you. And she keeps trying to cut in, again, politely, but can we talk about the policy? And Marjorie Taylor Greene just shuts her down mm-hmm. entirely. And I remember texting one of her advisors Do you think that she would have a better chance at bringing people to her side if she actually tried to engage with them or soften in any way? And they said, no, the time for Bill Buckley firing line type discourse is over. It's Hmm. war now. Wow. He said that this advisor that I was talking to, it's just it's total war now. And um, I think that to me defines so much more of the Republican base right now than the idea of, you know, Reaganism, like tomorrow is going to be better than today. There was a really interesting piece in the New York Times about turnout because everyone says, oh, okay, well, Republicans weren't excited. They didn't vote and Mm -hmm. and turnout was depressed. In fact, Republicans had a serious turnout advantage over Democrats. And the conclusion there was not all Republican voters voted for Republicans. A Mm -hmm. lot of Republican voters who actually made a point of coming out, made a point of coming out because they wanted to vote against Carrie Lake or vote against Herschel Walker Mm -hmm. or vote against Doug Mastriano or any other number of people who were just so offensive, even to Republicans and certainly a lot of independents, that that turnout didn't necessarily translate to Republican victories, even though the high numbers of these people turning out were, in fact, Republicans. And Um, Warnock, I mean, that was an explicit part of his strategy, too, which is where I think Stacey Abrams really aired. Mm -hmm. Um, Her strategy has always been built around, and it was built around in this most recent gubernatorial race that she lost in Georgia, Mm -hmm. was trying to get the Democratic voters and the young voters who typically stay home. Whereas Warnock took a completely different tack, which is Mm -hmm. to say, let's go get the soft Republicans or the centrists who, you know, maybe have always been registered Republicans, but can't stomach Herschel Walker as their senator. And it worked right. out really well for him. Yeah. What I think the larger point here that we're, we're talking about is that persuasion still does matter. I mean, there's been this conventional wisdom around turnout elections, which is that if you can get your base out and get your base excited, you're going to win, right? Um, and no, not necessarily. I mean, we, we sort of learned that there are nuances in the middle that can be determinative. And, you know, I think that's hopeful. I think persuasion and serious debate and serious voters are all a good thing for the democracy that we're all fighting for. So, yeah, I mean, that was just one of the takeaways that that I think that maybe, you know, hopefully is some kind of trend line that's moving in a positive direction. But it's all in the general election. We right. have to remember, um, yes. as long as Republican candidates and officials continue to feel just shackled by mm-hmm. the basest instincts, I should yeah. say, of their base voters, they're never going to be in a position in a Georgia, say, or a North Carolina even, to be the ones persuading successfully. Right. It's true. And look, we're pretty soon going to be in a presidential cycle. And Ron Sanders, Donald Trump, whoever, are not going to be in a persuasion mode as far as you know exactly. finding these sort of centrist suburban women who have become, you know, the wild card Mm -hmm. in these races. Absolutely. We should talk about the bread and circus that is 
the House Republican caucus that will soon be in charge. The House will soon be in Republican hands. The question is, who will lead that House? Kevin McCarthy has been working many, many, many years to be this next Speaker of the House. He has very thin margins, has a number of potential dissenters from within the Freedom Caucus, rumblings of opposition from Andy Biggs of Arizona. Mm -hmm. I mean, it looks like it will be a really, really messy process for the next few weeks. And I would guess maybe because of default and because there's no clear alternative, Kevin McCarthy maybe pulls this out. But man, this is going to be a really, really dicey caucus to try to lead, even if you can get the speaker's gavel and, and have the title for the rest of your life. Elena, how do you see, see this play out? I mean, I think I feel like we're we're trying to predict an avalanche, but um, well, okay. how's, how's the avalanche look? You mentioned how many years Kevin McCarthy has right. been waiting for this moment to actually be installed speaker. In my admittedly brief adult life, this will be the third time that Kevin McCarthy has come sort of this close to the speakership mm -hmm. only to have something, whether it's John Boehner suddenly deciding to retire and elect the election being postponed or just any number of events that have seemed to conspire to make sure that he doesn't actually get the gavel. Mm -hmm. And now here we are again with the Freedom Caucus saying that, you know, we don't love the idea of Kevin McCarthy. And in 2015, of course, that was when Paul Ryan was brought in to do this. Right. And the Freedom Caucus gave him a hard time, too. There were a lot of kind of negotiations and deals that had to be worked out before they gave him their blessing. And I don't know how that's going to happen this time around. Um, but speaking of Marjorie Taylor Greene, he does have her on his side trying to, you know, rally people around him. Mm -hmm. I think where that may be falling short is that everybody understands that it's a quid pro quo in the sense that McCarthy has made clear she will have a seat on the oversight committee mm -hmm. should she vote for him for speaker. And there's a lot she wants to do with that position. She wants to investigate Hunter Biden. She's filed, I think, no fewer than five impeachment resolutions against Joe Biden. There are also cabinet secretaries that she wants to go after. She Impeach, said the other yeah. day that she wants to defund the DOJ. And with a position on oversight, she will have the latitude to at least, you know, perform a theater of sorts. And I think we can expect things like that immediately, you know, regardless of whoever is speaker, just because... There really does not seem to be a Republican agenda among the House conference to do anything else. I mean, Kevin right. McCarthy has said the very first day of the new Congress, he is going to have the Constitution recited on the House floor. But beyond that, I think, is anyone's guess. But it's almost like we can't even think about that so much because it is still actually kind of dicey as to whether he right. gets the gavel anyway. Yeah. I mean, we don't look, <laughs> there are so many layers of unknown between now and when the leadership of the next Republican majority in the house is set, as we've been saying for years, I mean, I think this is a lot being driven by the base of the Republican party, whatever that looks like, whatever that morphs into in the next year or two, you know, wherever we go from here. So it'll be fascinating, but thankfully, there is just some amazing, amazing writing here in The Atlantic by Elena Plott, my colleague sitting right next to me with her new byline, Elena Plott. Calabro. Uh, Calabro. <laughs> so I'm just, I gotta, gotta get used to that. <laughs> Thank
Thank you all for being with us. This episode of Radio Atlantic was produced by Kevin Townsend and A.C. Valdez. Claudine Abade is the executive producer of Atlantic Audio. I'm Mark Leibovich. Thanks for listening.